Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we bring you a unique aspect to military medicine, which is a military-specific curriculum developed in partnership with Uniformed Services University and the American College of Surgeons to the Excelsior Surgical Society. War Docs has partnered with these organizations in order to help bring knowledge and information to the audience to help provide better military medical care. In this episode, we are pleased to have with us Dr. Paul Roach, who is a retired Navy captain who has specialty training in complex surgical oncology as well as general surgery training and spent years in the Navy, deployed multiple times. And we bring him to this episode because he helped write one of the modules on blunt abdominal trauma, which is in the torso trauma section of the military-specific curriculum. Paul, thank you for joining us today as we discuss the military-specific curriculum as outlined by the American College of Surgeons. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a great subject, and I'm, I'm pleased to get to talk about it. So we had talked in your episode where we had interviewed you about your career and your experiences, the development of the military-specific curriculum, and you had mentioned to us that the knowledge, skills, and abilities, the KSAs, were defined from the global wars on terror. Can you define that a little bit more for us, how the KSAs were developed? I'm not the authority on the subject. Dean Elster is at USU, and I think this was pretty much his brainchild, his and a few of the other officers around him. And what they decided was that there were a lot of elements to combat surgery that were distinct from, you know, stateside ordinary surgery that could be defined and practiced and perfected. And if you measured and focused on these, you would be a successful combat surgeon. So for example, let's say you do an operation gallbladder surgery. There's not a lot of trauma-related relevance to that procedure. And for a general surgeon, we do tons of those, but you are accessing the abdomen. You are in and around the liver and biliary tree, but its relevance to, for example, a fractured liver after a fall or a penetration of the liver from a fragment or a bullet is minimal. Now, let's say you do a liver resection that has a lot more relevance. So what they were able to do is they created a scale of every kind of surgery that we do in civilian life, and they broke it down into parts, and they had very sophisticated ways of assessing how relevant things were or weren't to combat surgery, but they gave each of our different procedures or the, the subsections of each of those procedures certain amount of credit towards combat surgery. And if this sounds a little bit arcane, it, it all becomes way clearer when you realize that many of the elements that you do in your daily practice can translate into those same elements in a combat practice. However, if all you do, for example, is you know colonoscopies and appendectomies and gallbladder surgery, that's not going to translate very well. So in figuring this out, it was also a mechanism to get back into the, the military healthcare system and say, look, we really need to focus our system on these complex procedures so that we can be ready for, uh, because prior to that, 
the more complex procedures were getting shipped out of the hospital system to the specialty hospitals. I also recently helped develop the KSAs. It took three years for vascular surgery, but that's exactly spot on. We wanted to make sure that we could identify those components of surgery that were important to be done when in garrison care, but had direct translation to the battlefield. And the way medicine in general tells you what a surgeon or a doctor has done is through a CPT code, but the CPT code may not say that you're doing a damage control laparotomy in combat. It may say you're doing a laparotomy for a bowel obstruction or you're doing a vascular repair for some other reason. But we want to focus today specifically on the chapter that you wrote. And for people who maybe want to access the website while they're listening, the website is apps.facs.org forward slash military clinical readiness curriculum. And you helped author the torso trauma section, but under that is the blunt abdominal trauma section. And so if people go and look at the blunt abdominal trauma section, what would you say are sort of the highlights of blunt abdominal trauma that people should, particularly military surgeons, should be thinking about when they prepare themselves for the care of a patient that sustains blunt abdominal trauma? When it comes down to it, The most important things are figuring out who exactly needs to have a laparotomy. And the indications are different than when you're back home because you don't have a CAT scanner. They're also different because you don't have a safety net underneath you. The room for error is really limited. And they're also different because as soon as you're done with this patient, you're going to put them on a helicopter, which is like a paint shaker. And it's just going to shake this patient And anything that is inclined to bleed is going to bleed. So you may think you know all the answers for abdominal trauma, but in this other context, you perhaps don't because you're not at home anymore. This isn't Kansas. And so I think in summary, that would be the most important mindset to have when you're looking at the abdominal trauma section. And so what the the learner will be able to identify and find out about are ways to approach patient care when they're dealing with abdominal trauma. Can you tell us how you evaluate a patient who has abdominal trauma when they, when you are called to the trauma bay to perform a surgical evaluation? Because like you said, you're having a decision. Does that patient go to the operating room or do we do some other diagnostic modality to gain information about their care? Well, if you're downtown, you have a variety of options at your fingertips. A person, let's say there was an MVC rollover or there was a blunt abdominal trauma from an assault with a baseball bat or something like that. You know, you can see them, you hook them up and you can get all your x-rays right away and they're beautiful x-rays and in a very large screen with perhaps even a radiologist reading it for you. If they're stable, you can send them off to the CAT scan, otherwise known as the answer machine, and get everything that you need to know. In your tent out in the middle of nowhere, you don't have any of that. And so you have to really focus on not just history, but your physical exam has to be spot on. And if you need to figure out if something's going on, you have to go sometimes a little bit old school, whether we're talking like a diagnostic peritoneal lavage, which you wouldn't normally do back in the States. You might have to do something like that, but you may not have the laboratory ability to do the DPL because you have to analyze that fluid. So you might just do a diagnostic aspiration. Your Hopefully now everyone will be equipped with an ultrasound so that your FAST exams can be done in the role two 
but your fast skills should be really good, something that you can rely on because you know that's all you have. The other option is you have to have a lower threshold for exploratory laparotomy. In a scenario where you might watch someone and see how they do, you may not have that option. If your staffing is like most roll twos, you don't have the staff to sit and watch that person for 12 hours because you're keeping those people up all night. Or the other thing is there may be more patients coming your way if it's active, you know, if missions are ongoing. So right now, this may be your only time to, to really figure out if this person needs an operation or not. And so you may have to lean towards an early operation just for that reason alone. So I think that's one of the important aspects is that there are those adjuncts, diagnostic peritoneal lavage, where you instill fluid into the abdominal cavity and you see whether or not there's red blood cells that come back or aspiration where you actually just try to draw back blood to see if blood is in your syringe. And then, of course, your, your FAST exam. But once you've identified a patient who you say, this patient needs to go to the operating room for a diagnostic and or therapeutic laparotomy. Take us through the steps of when you enter the abdomen, what's going through your mind and your systematic process. So the first and most important thing is even before you make your incision is vascular access. Particularly out in the roll two, there's no room for error. And so you have to have a subclavian line in or an internal jugular typically, or at least two good peripheral IVs before you do anything. And the reason is that, again, your anesthesia team is perhaps small, your support staff around the tent is very small, and then your surgical team is very small. So if you determine that a patient needs to go to the operating room for a diagnostic and or therapeutic laparotomy, take me through your steps of how you go and approach that patient's care at that point. Right. This is the crux of the whole M curriculum, which is that we are so adapted to CAT scanning we are so adapted to CAT scanning and our very helpful adjuncts in the main hospital that when you get a abdominal trauma and you don't even have the option necessarily of overnight observation because you may not have the staff to keep them overnight and you can't push work off. So let's say a person comes in with an equivocal abdomen, you might fast and then repeat the fast at 30 minutes. If you don't have an ultrasound, you're more austere than that or the machine's broken, your options are pretty reduced. Most of the time you don't have a fancy lab at all or your lab is very rudimentary. So performing a, a diagnostic peritoneal lavage could be limited if you lack the ability to analyze the fluid. You may just have to do a small or a limited abdominal exploration. You're not going to have laparoscopy. So you mentioned the word equivocal abdomen. So when I think of an equivocal abdomen, I think of someone who you're on the fence. You don't know whether they've got intra-abdominal hemorrhage. You don't know if there's some other hollow viscous injury that may be accompanying it. And so what you're describing is sort of getting certain data points. Once you, though, make over, certain data points over time, once you finally make the decision that this patient needs to go to the operating room, what are the things that you're thinking about as that patient, as you start getting that patient prepared for an intra-abdominal exploration? When I'm going to roll two, the foremost issues in my mind are the fact that we're extraordinarily far from any kind of main hospital. And whatever I'm going to do is going to have to serve this patient across a transport. So you're going to have a very low threshold to open the abdomen and explore. If you find anything that's injured, such as a, a small injury to the spleen, you're going to have 
essentially almost a 100% splenectomy rate there. It would have to be a very small injury in order to not do anything because you don't have the ability to transfuse much blood without some sort of heroic, such as walking blood bank maneuvers. You are going to put the patient on a helicopter typically or a transport plane, and that's going to shake them extremely. So any type of propensity to bleed is going to be exacerbated. If they bleed during transport, that's a very difficult situation for a transport team to, first of all, recognize and second of all, treat. So you're far better off doing the splenectomy in your role too than, than having a problem up in the sky. You also have to conserve heat. The patient was injured out in the environment. They were probably laying around for a bit. They had to get transported. They might have lost heat during the transport. You're in a tent. You don't necessarily have the ability to keep them warm. If you have a long operation, they're going to lose a lot of heat and you don't have a great way of heating them back up. And if they become coagulopathic, the whole situation is lost. So you have to move very quickly. You have to be very decisive and you have to stop all bleeding because you need bleeding, contamination, and heat are the three things that you have to make sure uh, are brought convincingly addressed in your operation. So you mentioned that we're discussing damage control surgery in an austere location. And so when I think of that, I think about trying to keep operations less than an hour. When you're dealing with, say, a solid organ or a hollow viscous injury, how is it that you're able to keep those surgeries in a very shortened time frame so that the patients can, in fact, be evacuated to a higher level of care quickly? I think the thing that costs the most time is indecision. So first of all, before you head out, you need to know your algorithm's cold. You need to know what you're going to do in any given situation, because that's where we lose a lot of times when we're flipping back and forth, trying to make decisions about this or that. The other thing is you want to make sure your abdominal exploration steps and, and patterns are very efficient and as quick as you can make them. A friend of mine, Navy captain, who was a great surgeon and he passed away, he used to say, haste makes, haste makes speed. That's Dr. Stockinger, Captain Stockinger. That was his phrase. And so in this scenario, if you're going to operate, you have to be decisive. You open it up. You pack, you give anesthesia a chance to catch up, you remove the packing. If it's the spleen and it's injured, you don't dither, you take it out. The organs that are most common from a blunt is liver and spleen. For the liver, you have to have very good liver pack, which isn't as simple as simply stuffing some lap pads in there. Make sure you review your best practices and see how to make a sandwich out of the liver by packing above and below. Then you quickly run the bowel, if there's injured bowel, you staple it off, leave it in discontinuity. You don't have time, perhaps, and you really don't have opportunity to connect them. Uh, you're probably just going to leave them in a damage control laparotomy state and send them on. Similarly, also with the colon. So our audience isn't all surgeons. So some people may be listening to that saying, wait a minute, you're going to take an injured piece of bowel, staple it off, and not hook it back together. How in the world does that work and why would you do that? What would you tell them as sort of the basic principles of that kind of damage control surgery? When a person is injured in a, in a combat trauma or even a civilian one, but we're here on the, on the War Docs podcast, so they are in the process of dying. And your job, your first job is to stop the slide and you need to arrest any bleeding, you need to eliminate any contamination. 
and you need to preserve body heat. And so those are your primary tasks and you accomplish those. And this is not the moment to put them back together or to fix things. You're simply stopping the slide toward oblivion. And so once you do that, you can leave them packed and there's a type of closure that we can do for the abdomen, which doesn't bring the abdominal wall back together. It's just a, it's just a pack, a packing technique where we can cover the abdomen in a, in a type of cellophane wrapper. And then you can transport them to a better location for the next phase of their care and then complete the job later in 24 or 48 hours. As long as you've stopped them from actively dying, this is a safe and a very ideal thing to do. And I think that's a very important point because a lot of times the resuscitation that a patient gets in that subsequent 12 to 24 hours makes the bowel better for putting it back together, performing a reanastomosis. So you talked about here you are at a roll two. And so you have to put the patient on an evacuation platform. And as you said, they're going to be shaking around on this helicopter or other type of transport. And anything that may bleed has a greater likelihood of bleeding than it would, say, in the United States when they're moving gently from an operating room to an intensive care unit and then back to an operating room where you're just transferring a patient on a gurney. What would you tell people are sort of the things you think about as a patient who's sustained abdominal trauma is being placed on that evacuation platform? Well, once you're done and you put them on the bird, it's very very telling moment as, as a surgeon because if every knot that you made, if every move, maneuver you made was done competently and you are very comfortable in all of that, you feel okay. If you have any anxieties sending them out onto the bird, they're only going to intensify tenfold until you hear back from them later on that they got there okay. So my advice would be, A, during your training, practice, uh, keep in mind the mantra that practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent, perfect practice makes perfect. So for all the surgical trainees out there, make sure you are the best person in the world at knot tying, at hemostasis, at doing a laparotomy, an exploratory laparotomy, going through all the steps, looking at every spot. You need to be at the very top of your game because you really can't afford any mistakes out there. And then during the operation, you have to just be very focused and methodical and efficient and go through all the steps that you need to and make sure when you pack them up that they are ready to go and that they can they can sort of weather anything. So having transferred patients from roll two to roll three as you have, I find that that period of time where they're being evacuated to be an extraordinarily stressful period of time because you wonder if in that short window of time that you had to do their surgery, did you do as much as you could have? And was there something that you missed? Would you say that I'm unique in that standpoint, or is that sort of a universal psychological aspect to military surgical care? I'm sure it's universal because it's not even like at your hospital where when you put them in the recovery room, if you really needed to, you could have access to them. You don't. You set them free. And so almost like a theater production on the stage, you have one moment to get it right and you have to get it right. And then once it's over, you look back at yourself and the person's flying away and you think, did I do everything that I could have? Did I do it as well as I could have? So I don't think you're unique at all. I think that's really the core of the whole practice. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to really 
remember sometimes what happens in that, that short hour period of time because there typically is a lot of chaos and concern. What tips would you give someone who is in a trauma situation where they're in an austere location and they know they've got to be quick about it and maybe they have even more than one or two patients where they've got to sort of go through that triage process and get the right patient on the evacuation platform. What would you say is sort of your overall perspective of how to tell someone to do that job the best they can? I would say cling to the basic, to the fundamentals. And, you know, before you even deploy, go through your head, every detail of the trauma laparotomy, every detail of every algorithm, and have that stuff down cold so that you're not wondering what to do in any situation. The more you train beforehand, the better you're going to be. So a lot of what you can do can be done, whether it's through flashcards or working with your colleagues or sort of mock oral boards, that effort will pay dividends. Then during the operation, stay focused, be thorough, and look out for missed injuries, especially the tricky part. You know, like in, let's say there was a multiple shrapnel type injury to the abdomen. You have to look for injuries, let's say, into the bowel around the, the mesentery, where it's easy to miss a small injury right there. If it's a blunt abdominal trauma, make sure you you're thorough about checking ligamentitis and you know terminal ilium and and all the other points of fixation. I think that's the best is is stick with the basics and master those and and execute those. So some people might be listening to this saying to themselves, "Well, I go to all these meetings every year. Or I go to an annual surgical meeting. What is unique about this military specific curriculum that you would tell them if you're a military surgeon or even a military medical provider, you should go look at this because it's going to give you a unique insight into the military medicine. What would you tell them are the benefits to the military-specific curriculum? Well, first of all, I can tell you that the performance on the general surgery boards does not translate into performance on the military combat-specific exam that we've created, that those two don't overlap, that the content within the exam, which is what the M curriculum is designed to provide to you is unique and it's combat specific, whether it has to deal with types of triage or what manners of treating, whether it's burns or fractures or blunt abdominal trauma or vascular injuries. Because the context of the military deployed environment is so different, there is variance between that and what you're going to get at the American Board of Search. So I think that's the most important point. Secondly, there are some injuries that are just unique to military, whether it's blast injuries or the type of IED injuries that we see or high velocity weaponry injuries. Well, we've been speaking to the author of the blunt abdominal trauma section for the military specific curriculum, retired Captain Paul Roach. Thank you, Paul, for joining us on this episode of War Docs. Thank you, Wayne. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.